following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Show yourself strong And in my 
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Almighty God, quicken us now by your spirit. Quicken us, O Lord, to do an honest, an honest work before you of opening our hearts and standing by faith to be given a pure heart. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. A week ago when Pastor Jim was with us, he spoke about the aromas of Christmas. And I have some favorite aromas of Christmas. I love the smell of fresh greens. I love the aroma of baking cookies. They, they smell even better than they taste. I love the smell of fresh pies going in the oven. For some reason, most of the aromas of Christmas for me center around food. It seems that Christmas is when I always have chocolate-covered toffees. It's the time for All of those special foods that we love. But then he changed and he began to speak about the aromas of that first Christmas. Jesus was born in a barn, a cave probably, a stable. He was laid in a manger. 
The manger was simply the food box for the cattle. It was probably the cleanest place in the environs. We would be horrified today, even bringing a baby into a stable. The flies and the aroma of manure, old and fresh. That's where Jesus was born. And Pastor Jim likened that to when Jesus is born in our hearts, he's born into another stable. Because in our hearts, too, there is the aroma of manure. The sin that we so easily walk in, the sin that we keep going back to, the scriptures call it like a dog going to his vomit or to a pig going back to his sty. Come on, let's be honest. Jesus was born into your life. All of you who are here call yourselves Christians. But as Pastor Jim pointed out, the wise men came two years later. There were no wise men who came to the stable. That's part of our modern American imagery. But he pointed out that two years later, when the wise men came, Jesus was living in a clean house. They had no cattle in the bedrooms. The goats were not running through. It was a clean house. And he made the point very, very well that a Christian can have a pure heart by faith. That we should not be living in a house now full of manure. There should not be the stench of sin about us any longer. Because Jesus immediately, if he is present, cleans up the environs. He will not live in a filthy stable. He will be born there, but he will not live there. And so we call it backsliding. We call it falling away from grace. What we're really speaking of in very kind words is we filled our house back up with manure. We turned our house into a stable. And we brought every unclean thing into our lives. So Jesus, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 13, begins to speak about the entrance into the kingdom of God. He says, enter through the narrow gate, that is, the suffering gate. For wide is the gate... And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small or groaning is the gate, and narrow, suffering, the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. He's saying there are only going to be a few people who will turn off the broad way of the stable, 
and find a clean house that they can live in. So what is the gate that is so narrow and what is what is the gate that is so broad? Now, I have to confess to you, I have to be very careful that I don't take things out of context. Because in our culture, we have been trained to jerk a passage out of the scripture and make it apply to what we want to make it apply to. So let's look at the context of this passage to identify what the gate is. Let's not assume that we know. Let's let Jesus interpret the gospel according to his words. What is the gate? Verse 13 says, enter through the narrow gate. The context of this passage begins in the top part of chapter 7 where he says, don't judge others. And then he, he talks about Asking and seeking and knocking for a good gift. And we're told that God will give, the Father will give good gifts to those who ask. If a son asks for a a piece of bread, will the Father give him a stone? No. And then we find the entrance into the kingdom of God. The gateway. Verse 12, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So Jesus is actually saying, look, there's a narrow gate. And that narrow gate is to treat other people the way you would like to be treated. I read that and I was shocked because I thought it would be a doctrinal gate. But it's not a doctrinal gate. It's how you treat your wife when you get up in the morning. It's how you treat your children. It's how you treat mom and dad. It's how you, it's how you treat other people. That's the narrow gate to enter into the kingdom of God. Part of my heart says, okay, I'll treat you the way you deserve. The way I think you deserve to be treated. So if you're kind, I'll be kind. If you're nasty, then I don't want anything to do with you. If my rights get trampled on, then I'm going to demand my rights. But Jesus is saying the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is to treat other people the way I would like to be treated. And God just illustrated that for us. Jesus outlined the Father's response Which of you, if you were to go to your father and ask for something that you needed, which of you would like it if he gave you a stone? You wouldn't. You would not like to be treated that way. So he's saying the father is willing to treat you the way he would like to be treated. Let me say it again. You want to know what the personality of God is like? God will treat you the way he wants to be treated. 
Does that conflict at all with your image of who God is? So we go to the Lord and we pray and we ask him for something. Why does he give it to us? Because that's how he wants to be treated. That's what God's heart is. He treats us the way he would like to be treated. Now, it's very clear. God does not want to be treated with a house full of manure. Because then he would have to live in that mess. So he gave us his son so that we would be able, by his power, to forsake the sin that grabs at us and cast it aside. Do you want someone to get in your face and tell you how much they hate you? Do you want conflict with people? Do you want them? How do you want to be treated? I suspect you want to be treated the way God wants to be treated. Because we were made in his image. We would like to be treated with respect and with honor. We would like to be treated with generosity. We would like to be treated with mercy and with kindness. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? God becoming flesh and dwelling among us? I've struggled with this. I've said, Lord, what's the mechanism or what's the, what's the process by which I could begin to flow from my heart and from my life a constant stream of love, mercy, integrity, not using other people, not seducing other people. I was told once by a man I very highly respected, a mentor of mine. He said, Ray, I have just one trouble with you. I said, what's that? He said, you're insinuative. I said, insinuative? I've never heard the word. What does it mean? He said, go look it up. So I went and looked up the definition of the word insinuative and discovered that it means someone who easily moves through defenses to seduce a person into doing what they want. I said, oh, I'd better make sure that if I'm going to do that, it's for a righteous cause. So I went back and I spoke with Dr. Bevan. And I said, does it have to be negative? He said, no. It's a gift God gave you, but you use it for your own advantage. I said, I got it. I understand. So what is it that we need to understand about this whole Christian walk 
that will begin to open for us the door, the narrow door of the kingdom of God, where we're not trying to use other people. We're not trying to seduce other people for our own ends, where we're not cutting people off in coldness, where we're not isolating from other people because we can't have our way. And the more I struggled with that, the more clear it became to me that today I was going to have to take you to the story in the book of John, the fourth chapter, where there is a Samaritan woman, by definition already an unclean woman, a Samaritan woman who knew a lot about theology, who knew a lot about history, who was very sharp intellectually, but she was unclean on the inside. She was living with a man, shacked up with him. She left other husbands. Oh, but she could talk theology real well. She knew how to worship. She could praise God with the best of them. But she was unclean. It's to this woman that Jesus came and asked for a drink. And she says in verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Of course, she said, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. Have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. And immediately she launches into her theology. I just began to meditate on that. I don't want to get right to the point now. Do you have that well of water up flowing in your heart? You come here and you listen to a sermon. And hopefully the sermon inspires you, convicts you, causes you to go home and say, I'm going to go home and read the scriptures. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you're back on course. But all of that was water that was put in. That's what you drank. That's where you said, I'm going to go do and better. I'm going to go and do a better job of being a Christian. That's water you're taking in that was given to you in the form of a sermon. I'm asking, do you have for your own life a well of water that springs up out of you? that constantly is flowing up out of you, that makes you hungry for God and makes you compassionate with other people. 
I could ask it another way. Are you a self-starting Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or do you run out and deplete? And then you have to go read something or you have to go grab something to start the process of conviction in your heart once more. Do you have in you the well of the Holy Spirit that wells up? As I've talked with some of you, I watch as you are in the sermon and I see conviction painted all over your face. I may even see some tears come to your eyes. You like what's being said. You, you appreciate the call to follow Jesus. And then you go out and you live your life as though you had not heard what was said. You quickly go to the party. You quickly go to those friends that you want to please. You quickly go and live your life. You don't sacrifice for Jesus Christ. You're tight with your money. You're, you're looking at what you can get and what you can grab. You're looking at the pleasure you can live in or how you can survive. Because there is no well of water springing up inside of you. There's no Holy Spirit generating power in your life. And part of what has to happen at the National Prayer Chapel is that every one of us has to have that well of water springing up so that we have enough to go out during the week and give to our families and to others to draw them to Jesus. I can't give you enough here to inspire you to go win your families. Because when you go out with what I've shared with you, you're going to say, do I really want to say that to my wife or to my husband or to my family? It's just going to make them mad. Do I really want to start another battle? But when the Holy Spirit is rising up in your heart, you will not walk in sin. You will say no to ungodliness. Why? Not because something is put in that I gave you, but something is rising up in your soul from the Holy Spirit who convicts you, who says, don't do that to the Father. Don't do that to Jesus. Jesus won't treat you that way. Don't treat him that way. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do unto God as you would have him do unto you. There's another passage we should look at. It's found in John, the seventh chapter. I'll begin reading it for you. Verse 37. John, the seventh chapter, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
you need to understand there are two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that most of us are acquainted with that we call Pentecost. This is not the baptism that's being spoken of here with the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. The baptism of Pentecost was a special baptism for empowering and courage and the giftings to do the work of ministry. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here when he's speaking of living water that will flow from within you. I want to show you in the scriptures where that specific thing is spoken of. If you'll go with me to the book of Ephesians, the first chapter. Ephesians, the first chapter. And by the way, the book of Ephesians is about the church. The whole book is about the church. But we're not going to focus on the church now. I want to focus instead on the gifts. Could I put it this way, please? The packages that God has wrapped and put under the tree for you. The Christmas gifts from God. This is the description of them. Let me read. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, was, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's saying, look, God went and bought this store out for you. He's not going to withhold anything from you. He's giving you everything. The first gift, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us for fellowship with himself. God chose us to be holy. The word holy simply means hagios, to be set apart, but it also means absolutely no continuance of sin in our heart. To be utterly sanctified, not over one area, but in every area. That's what God wants his people to be, and he's offering that gift to us. He predestined in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He's offering us full adoption into his family from which Adam and Eve fled when they joined the family of the devil. He's saying you don't like the destruction in your life. You don't like the destruction that drugs and sex and all the other wild things that Satan tries to bring on us. You don't like the bitterness and the anger. You don't like the lying and the cheating. You don't have to live in it anymore. You don't like to live in the stable with the manure. You don't need it anymore. I've given you a way out. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is the last thing. Did you see the first thing he gave us? Redemption. 
literally, he had to buy us back from the camp of the devil. We belonged to the devil. Lock, stock, and barrel owned. He went and bought us in order to set us free. Verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. And his intention, later in the book of Ephesians, it says, was to do that wonderful work of grace through the church. We're the church. God wants to do this wonderful work of redemption in the world through us, through the church. So not only has he redeemed us, but he said, now, could I give you something worthwhile to do with your life? Could I give you a purpose for life? Some of you have been saying, Pastor, I don't have any purpose. I live every day. I need a purpose. Here's one. Cooperate with God in redeeming sinners out of the cave of manure. Now, that's a purpose worth living for. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. What's he saying? He's saying the first gifting of the Holy Spirit comes to a person who repents of their sin, who turns aside from their wickedness, and who begins to treat God the way you want to be treated. He's saying, when you do that, I will give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will be a seal on your life. At that point, there is no longer any continuing sin in your life. I mean, what would happen if each of you were to do what I've done? And some of the rest of you have done, which is get on your knees before God and confess every known sin in your life. And renounce every ungodly thing that the Holy Spirit has convicted you of. So that you could walk into this sanctuary with absolute assurance that there was nothing in your house unclean. There was nothing in your heart that was unclean. There were no feelings of bitterness or rage remaining. There were no longer any judgments remaining in your heart. There were no longer any accusations against God or anyone else in your spirit because you have finally got on your face before God and been honest about who you are 
and you have given it totally into the hands of Jesus, and now you simply lift up your hands, he's saying, when you do that, I will give to you the seal of the Holy Ghost. That's the water that begins to flow in your heart. That's what wells up to eternal life in you. Now the problem comes, and he speaks about this, In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, he's just been describing what you're going to have to put off. Falsehood, lying, bitterness. He's speaking about all of these things. And then he says, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that that is helpful for building others up according to their needs. He's saying, husbands, be gentle with your wives. Don't be harsh. Be kind to your boss, even if he mistreats you. Be kind to a friend who has betrayed you. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Treat God the way you want him to treat you. So the Holy Spirit is given. The seal is present in our lives. But he's saying we can grieve the Holy Spirit by returning to the manure. And as we return to that manure, the Holy Spirit is grieved and he begins to withdraw from our lives. Until finally we can no longer feel conviction. And then one day we wake up and we say, what have I done? What have I done? Look how I've treated the Almighty. Look how I have sinned against him. Look how I've sinned against other people. Because once that seal is given, you can grieve him. But he is at every opportunity going to come back and begin to flow up out of your belly and say to you, stop. A still small voice saying, stop. Don't do that. You're grieving God. You're grieving Jesus. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The only connection you have between your heart and Jesus is the Holy Ghost. The only possible way you can be saved is by not grieving the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit departs from you, you are left utterly barren and will be destroyed. He's saying many take the Broadway. Many churches are arranged along the Broadway. 
They have wonderful programs. They have great speakers. They entertain and they talk about prosperity and they, they're always lots of laughter and you'd think you're on Broadway. You are on Broadway. The show's on. He's saying that's not the way of salvation. The way of salvation is the narrow road, the suffering road. And that suffering road literally is saying, deny yourself and start treating other people the way you want to be treated. Showing them respect and honor. Treating them with decency. And treating God in the same manner. The entrance into the kingdom of God is at the cross where we utterly lay down all of the filth of our sin. It's where the seal of the Holy Spirit comes and the whole demeanor of our life is transformed as we begin to treat others as we want to be treated. So how is it for you today? Are you still living a self-centered life? Grabbing what you think you can grab? Going after what you think will please you? Without regard to how Jesus will feel about what you're doing? Have you hurt others? Have you hurt God? Have you grieved him? Or is there today a well of water springing up in your life? Flowing out of you. You'll never receive the Pentecost baptism until the first seal of the Holy Spirit is in place and that well of love is flowing in your heart. Christian perfection is nothing more and nothing less than treating other people the way you want to be treated. Almighty God, King of all the earth, I have so many times grieved your Holy Spirit. I would no longer grieve him. You have treated me with such love and kindness and mercy. Father, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you. Holy Spirit, I thank you. I thank you for the kindness you've shown me. For the kindness you've shown the National Prayer Chapel. For the love that you've demonstrated in our midst. Lord, I thank you. I pray today, Lord, for that seal of the Holy Spirit. Shall ever surely find me.
Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Presence of His glory.